Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, David Ferris, your caller number 11. Oh, fantastic. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, radio joke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you in a car. All right. All right. If you could just give me like a check one, two, check three. Hi, I'm David Ferris, just to hear how it sounds. Okay. Check one, two, check one, three. I'm David Ferris, and I'm here to talk politics. What do you think? All right. We're going to call you on your phone. Is that okay? This doesn't sound that great. This doesn't sound good? Oh, that's funny, because I bought, I bought a new toy that's supposed to. Oh, you got a new toy? I got like a, like a microphone. Um, Okay, well, it sounded a little it's sounding better now. It's sounding better now, but yeah, it sounded a little wonky there at first. Uh, is there any settings or anything like that you gotta? Um, so I'm just moving it closer. Um, okay. How's it? How's it sounding now? That sounds good. All right, we'll roll with this. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with this, this. and just uh, we'll okay. let you know. Uh, you know this already, but I'm going to re- remind you. We're uh, recording this, uh, and it'll drop on Monday. So if if the sound is terrible, we'll just stop you and we'll go. Oh, you know, we're okay. not live, so we'll just stop you and make yeah. an adjustment. Yeah. So okay, yeah. Um, uh, I'm gonna do a little intro and then we'll get started. All right, all right. How you guys doing? Hey, we're good. How you doing? Nice. You get a haircut recently? Uh, haircut, a very uh, very low cost haircut. I shaved my own head. Hey, so. what number? <laughs> Number three. It looks like a number three. Uh, I did it number. Yeah, it was number three. Bam! Come on, give me a little credit. Did you know that? By the way, I know ball. I know shaved heads. Did you uh, get that text I sent you? The main thing is the New York Times thing. Did you get that? Yeah, I saw the New York Times thing. Uh, Forget the other thing. You don't need the other thing. Just you don't. Okay. I'll. I can handle it. And just we don't have to talk about the article itself. Just the issue. Okay. So all right, here we go. Yeah, I mean. I haven't read the article, but I assume I could probably read it. I could probably predict what it's going to say based on the title. So, I'll, I'll quote um, you the, 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 the relevant passage. All right. Do an intro. I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. Thank you, hipster. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J. Bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Aerospace Workers. I can't remember that thing. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, June 26, 2020, in the front page of the New York Times. And this is relevant, folks, so pay attention. The front page of the New York Times has an illustration that shows uh, where the coronavirus uh, where cases were back in March 24th and March through the 30th, uh, where the cases were concentrated then as opposed to where they're concentrated now. And it's like a political map. Then it was blue America. Now it's red America. I guess Republicans are learning that the virus picks on them as well. Anyway, uh, as we do with all bonus guests, we ask our distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, Okay. My name is David Ferris. I'm a professor of political science at Roosevelt University. Uh, I wrote a couple of books we've talked about before, and uh, I'm obsessed with national politics. So that's uh, that's why I'm here. Yes. Uh, David <laughs> comes on the show about once a month or so. We talk national politics. The two books that he's alluding to, It's Time to Fight Dirty. Uh, that's my mantra. Uh, he's the one who put it in my mind. Democrats, stop being wimps. Start playing the game uh, to win the way Republicans do. And uh, not that the Democrats will ever listen to us anytime soon. Uh, and the new one, the one that has just come out, The Kids Are All Left. Briefly, David, uh, remind folks exactly what the, the theme is and how they can get this book. Uh, so The Kids Are All Left tells the story of how um, the last two generations of voters have turned sharply Democratic. So that would be 
millennials and then uh, Generation Z or Zoomers, as they're now calling them. Um, and it's an attempt to explain why that is and then um, to explain why Republicans are in a lot of trouble nationally um, for probably decades to come if they don't start making inroads with, with young voters. So um, it's, uh, there's some political science that explains why people vote the way they do, about why generations vote the way they do, how we acquire our political beliefs, um, why millennials will never change, why the myth of getting more conservative as you age um, is a myth and, and not a reality. Um, and then I spend a whole chapter attacking um, stupid young conservatives. So um, <laughs> uh, it's good times. If you want to see somebody, if you want to read somebody uh, being really mean about Ben Shapiro, then please buy my book. Uh, it's uh, um, available anywhere books are sold, um, which is uh, you know, nowhere right now, except, uh, you know, uh, you can order in your local independent bookstore, pick it up curbside, have it delivered to you. Uh, city lit, uh, women and children first, whatever your jam is, uh, that's where I'd love for you to get the book. Um, if all else fails, uh, the, you know, the behemoth of, of Jeff Bezos uh, is out there for you, too. <laughs> all right. Uh, when you refer to uh, stupid young conservatives, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind were the 3,000 or so students for Trump who packed a megachurch in Arizona, in Phoenix, I think it was on Tuesday, to hear uh, their uh, supreme commander, uh, Donald John Trump, give a, a speech. And uh, most of them were not wearing masks. Most of them were scoffing at the notion that they had to wear masks. The uh, official line of the Trump campaign, David, seems to be that masks are not required. The coronavirus was always a hoax, but even if it was a hoax, it's now officially over. And Donald Trump is, it's perfectly fine for Donald Trump to give rallies uh, where people jam in, although sometimes he has a hard time filling up the rallies so he can't jam them in like the one in Tulsa uh, and the one in Arizona. And he, apparently he's still gung-ho to give his convention speech at a, uh, a jam-packed arena in Jacksonville, Florida, utter insanity, particularly what's going on in Florida. And that brings me to the illustration in today's New York Times, which I had to share with you. And uh, I know you've had a chance to look at it. You're probably looking at it right now. I sent it to you. Uh, it shows that the virus is spreading quickly in red states. So I guess right. you might say the official Republican strategy of ignoring the virus has failed. You, would you agree with that point? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, this is something that you could see coming early on in this crisis. You know, the, the, the big the big blue cities uh, in a small number of states got, got hit first. Um, New York and Chicago, we got we got hit pretty hard here. Um, and even in the even in the cities that got hit pretty hard, you know, the people that were doing the suffering and the dying were mostly these um, you know, the frontline workers and people of color and uh, nurses and doctors. And I think that allowed Red America to just to sort of bracket this as a as a New York problem. You know, you, you might remember the uh, infamous Brett Stevens column uh, in the New York Times where he said that America shouldn't the rest of America shouldn't have to play by New York rules. You know, um, and uh, you know the 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 Republicans and the conservative media ecosystem decided early on that they weren't going to take this seriously, that they were going to open too quickly. Um, They're going to turn masks into into a culture war issue instead of a low cost way of saving lives. Um, and the people take their cues from the top, you know? So when Greg Abbott doesn't take it seriously, people don't take it seriously. When Ron, when Ron DeSantis doesn't take it seriously, uh, folks don't take it seriously in Florida. So now we have these big hotspots. Um, and, uh, it's, it's depressing. Um, it's, it's sad because I don't know that these outbreaks can, can be contained in the states that they're in because we don't have internal border controls in the United States. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, the sense of schadenfreude about, about Ron DeSantis being humiliated is, is far outweighed by the fact that, like, my life is probably going to be miserable for, for months longer than it needs to be um, because these idiots can't take things seriously. So it's really frustrating. I think it's worth um, pointing out, too, that it's not, at this point, just Republican governors who are doing dumb stuff. <laughs> so um, in California, you know, Gavin Newsom is just, like, refusing to um, to put any new restrictions back into place, even though California looks pretty bad too. All right, uh, well, be honest. I'm I'm concerned that we're moving to phase four here too. Uh, yeah, you. Uh, let's talk about that. Uh, Democrats. 
If I'm guilty of anything, and I'm guilty of a lot of things, but if in particular I'm guilty of anything with my beloved Democrats, is that I let them off the hook too uh, frequently and too easily uh, because they're always responding to a counterattack by a Republican. And actually, I'm pretty hard on them, not that I think about it, but whatever. So (laughs) just think about in Illinois. J.B. Pritzker took a relatively strong stand in March once yeah. we, this, the, the people in this country recognized this is a serious crisis as opposed to something off in China. He took a relatively strong stand, and there was a counterpunch from the Republican Party in Illinois. And my fear is that Governor Pritzker will have advisors telling him, boss, uh, we got to look like you know we're uh, open-minded, and we can't look like we're de- we're not listening to the open up the state uh, crowd. So let's move along. My sense is that Gavin Newsom's done that in California. Yeah, that's my sense. What's, um, what's your thoughts? That's definitely. I think the dynamic here is you know the the governors who took this seriously and did the right things in March and April um, started to get fidgety um, when. Florida and Texas did not blow up in May with with uh, with COVID, um, and I think that their their worst case political scenario here was like um, you get all these red states that were open and people were like at movie theaters and bars and having a good time and like life's back to normal, and then meanwhile in Illinois, you know, like we're all still trapped in our right, and it's like um, so I think that 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 fear of being proven like catastrophically wrong about having gone too far with the restrictions. Um, meant that, in, in fact, a lot of blue states, um, including a lot of blue governors, have, I think, moved a little bit too quickly um, to, to advance through the various stages of reopening. Like, I was with I was with Illinois through phase three. I think the phase three is fine. But we have seen actually a little spike here this week um, from, like, five, 600 daily cases to, to close to 900. Um, and uh, and now, now we're going to open the gyms. You know, so... Uh, um, I'm, I'm concerned that we're moving too quick, you know, that, that, um, that governors are responding to the perceived political incentives of, uh, of, of like retroactively having been seen as, as going too far, of being too strict and too harsh. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm hope, you know, if I'm hopeful about anything, it's such like this horror show unfolding in Texas, um, will, will cause, you know, Pritzker and Lightfoot to maybe to rethink this and, and push phase four back to August or something. Um, uh, and I think that there's also some common sense things that they could do to relieve our misery, like open the beaches um, rather than opening the gyms and indoor dining. So um, I honestly don't understand the rationale for some of the stuff that's happening here right now. Let's just talk about um, that briefly. You put a tw- uh, tweet out, gyms open, but beaches closed. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we talk about the inconsistencies of our policies all the time. Uh, the closing down of the yeah. lakefront, uh, just condemning people for walking along the lake. Uh, meanwhile, in Evanston, you could walk along the lake. It was always open in Evanston. Yeah. So somehow or other, exactly. it, it's okay. Libraries are closed in Chicago. I mean, open in Chicago, but they're closed in Evanston. <laughs> so it's okay to have our libraries right. open, but our beaches got... Explain what you meant in that tweet. Gyms open, but beaches closed. So, you know, I, I mean, I think it's, imp- it's always important to note that... Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, and there's a lot about the virus that we don't understand, right? And so when people go out and they make these super confident predictions, they, they could always be proven wrong by unfolding events because there's some stuff that we just don't understand about how this works. But I think that the best science that we have right now suggests that outdoor transmission is very difficult um, or, you know, very, very unlikely. Um, if it wasn't very unlikely, then New York City would be in the midst of a massive spike right now because we're three weeks out from those protests. Um, and uh, it does not seem like it's exacerbated the problem there at all. Um, if outdoor transmission was a major problem, then Florida would have been where it is now six weeks ago, you know, when everybody was crowding the beaches in Jacksonville. Um, and so the, 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 the science, as best as I understand it, is that um, the real danger is sustained exposure to the virus indoors is the, is the easiest way to catch it and it's the way to get the worst, the worst version of it. So if you're going to tell me that, like, you know, it's safer for us to open the YMCA and have, like, you know, have all like sweaty Chicagoans, like, you know, touching the, the handles of their elliptical machines, but that I still can't go to the beach. Um, 
I don't get that. You know, like we're going to have people dining indoors. Like, have you seen any of those graphics about, you know, like a virus, one person has a virus and it goes to like, you know, the 10 seats to your left and the 10th, like, I'm not going out to eat. That's nuts. <laughs> Um, and so I honestly don't know what political incentives Lightfoot and Pritzker are, are responding to right now. You know, like people are unhappy and frustrated, but I don't think there's a majority for, for doing things that are, that are unwise, that are just going to lead us back to the place that we were a couple of months ago. Um, and so I, I you know, I, I hope that we can look at the experience of, of some of these red states right now that, that did open the, did open the gyms and movie theaters and nail salons, um, and say like, Hey, this is not ideal. Like, I don't like this either. Nobody likes this, but we, we got to keep going um, with some limited mitigation measures for a couple more months. Because um, what I'd like to see is get cases down to, to close to zero rather than, you know, like it's great that it's only 800 and not 10,000, but 800 cases a day is still not, not awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not, we have not rubbed this thing out. All right. Let's, let's talk about the political ramifications of, for red state governors for a moment before we head into uh, the polls and the Biden Trump race, because it's all related. Uh, Donald Trump has decided that he's through with the pandemic and he's through with staying at home and he's going to have arena uh, rallies and people don't have to wear masks. That's his decision. And he's made it. And what's, yeah. what's um, alarming is that uh, the Republican party is going along with him. Uh, we saw that in Oklahoma. We saw that in Arizona. And now, and this is what I want to ask you about, Florida. Florida, if you take a look at your uh, the graph I sent you from, the, excuse me, the illustration I sent you from the New York Times is about as red as you can get when it comes to the outbreaks. And Ron DeSantis has given the green light for Donald Trump to come to the state of Florida in Jacksonville in August to uh, give a speech in, in an auditorium, uh, a speech that North Carolina would not let him deliver because it was too dangerous, okay? But Donald Trump yeah. has declared more or less in so many words that the pandemic is over. So are there going to be political ramifications for a governor like Ron DeSantis to endanger his people because he's too chicken? to stand up to Donald Trump. Are Republican governors ever going to pay the price for their utter cowardice? Well, um, I, I'll probably only if they're up for election this year, <laughs> which uh, unfortunately DeSantis is not up for election this year. Um, the, the people that are going to pay the price um, for, for Ron DeSantis' idiocy um, are in the Trump administration. You know, um, I don't know if you've seen polling out of Florida recently, um, but there are some polls showing uh, Joe Biden leading Donald Trump by double digits in Florida. Um, Florida is a state with a with a with a heavy um, elderly population, you know. Um, and it turns out, Ben, this is going to sound crazy, uh, but it turns out that people don't appreciate uh, when their political leadership tries to get them killed. Um, so it's like I, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of over 65 who are looking at what's happening right now, and they're like, oh man, I've been voting Republican for years, but. Uh, I never thought they'd say it's okay if I, if I just like all me and all my friends got wiped out, uh, so that Applebee's can open, you know, like I, it's, it's nuts. Um, the political incentive structure for the Trump administration right now, is just, it's like so obvious, right? It's like, take it seriously, wear a mask, you know, get people to wear masks in, indoors, um, go out, be normal. Um, don't hold your rallies, right? Like the public opinion polling about this stuff is extremely clear. Um, the public does not approve of Trump rallies right now. Um, I don't even think Republican voters approve of, 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 of Trump rallies right now. Um, I think the Tulsa uh, fiasco where, you know, we, we had the, we had the rally indoors and it, and it drew like a, like a Marlins pirates game in, in September. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, that wasn't produced by a lack of enthusiasm for Donald Trump among his base. That was produced by, some percentage of his base, the people that would normally turn out for a rally were like, you know what? Maybe this is not such a great idea. You know, like I, I love me some Donald Trump, but I don't particularly want to die. Um, and so every, it's like, he just doesn't seem to be able to reverse course here. Um, and, the, the, you know, the, the, the path forward to, to reversing his polling decline is, is so clear, but he just can't do it um, because he's so, 
so invested in the idea that the virus has been vanquished, uh, that masks don't don't work, that, you know, Anthony Fauci is a thorn in his side. You know, he just wants to go back to the world of death. He wants it so badly um, that I think he's like living in an alternate universe right now. Um, and uh, in, in, in our universe, um, he's bled out like six points nationally and in all of the swing states um, just since May. Um, it's, it's probably the most dramatic erosion of his standing in, in his presidency. Um, if you if you exclude the, the post inauguration period where he enjoyed, you know, what for him was the high watermark of his uh, his opinion polling and his presidency of like 46 <laughs> percent. Um, and so he's in real trouble. And the more that he is seen um, as uh, as someone who is exacerbating the coronavirus crisis rather than addressing it, um, he's going to he's going to continue to lose ground. And these governors who who yoked themselves to, to him. Early on in this crisis, um, you know, this, there's this great thing going around Twitter today of, of, of Ron DeSantis' uh, press conference in April where he's yelling at the media, you know, you all, you know, you won't cover the positive news coming out of Florida. And Marco Rubio was like, you know, journalism is broken because no one will give, give Florida credit. And there was the, the Rich Lowry column in the National Review that's so infamous at this point. He says, where does Ron DeSantis go to get his apology? You know, and I'm like, how about jail? You know, why doesn't he go to jail? <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's like a, it's a bad situation down there, man. They had nine thousand cases today, um, and even if you, you know, even if you price in the fact that we have some more treatments now than we did three months ago, and we know a bit more about the virus and how to treat it, um, and so that you know the death rate's not going to be as high as, as New York, um, even if most of the people getting it are, are relatively young, you're, you're still talking about you know dozens, if not if not hundreds, of deaths a day in Florida, um, based just on the but just on the cases we're seeing now, it's, it's a major crisis. The spike that we've seen there over the last week is as dramatic and bad as it was in New York early on in this crisis. Um, so I, I don't know what to tell you at this point, but uh, it's all like I, sometimes I watch Trump and I'm like, you you don't want to do this anymore. Like you want to lose. Like you don't like, you don't want to be president. And uh, we can make that happen for you. You know. Well, it's it, it's it, it's it's interesting hearing you say that because I've so many people said that when he was running the first time. The great yeah. political pundit Howard Stern said that. Uh, <laughs> he, I know Donald Trump. You know he doesn't want to win, and and it, so Trump was breaking every single rule of politics when he yeah. ran in 2016, and he still won. So I'm all, <laughs> he's now beyond that. Uh, now there's a couple things you said. The polling data. We'll get to that. And uh, the path forward to reversing the polling decline, we'll get to that. But before I leave Governor Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida behind, if you were Ron DeSantis' political advisor and his scientific medical doctor advisor, okay, would you urge him to tell Donald Trump he cannot deliver his convention speech in Florida. They are moving. I cannot accentuate this enough, David. They're moving the convention speech, part of the convention, from North Carolina to Jacksonville because North Carolina won't allow Donald Trump to pack people into an arena. And Ron DeSantis <laughs> will allow him to do that. So let's just just concentrate on that for the moment. Do you think there's any universe in the world where Ron DeSantis would, in looking out for the best interests, the health interests of people in Florida, say, I'm sorry, President Trump, you cannot deliver your speech in Jacksonville? I mean, it, it's so obvious, right, um, that he should not be doing this. And I, I think that, that two-thirds of the country um, looks uh, 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 at a big indoor gathering as, as just an act of, of, of sheer suicidal insanity. Um, and it makes them angry because it's not just the people in the arena that are going to get sick and die, right? They're going to go back and they're going to infect their friends and their coworkers and their parents and their grandparents. Um, and it's, um, you know, the line from these guys is like, well, just, just shut off the, uh, just wall off the, uh, the nursing homes. We'll be fine. You know? And it's like, Hey buddy, I don't know if you know any old people, but they don't all live in nursing homes. You know what I mean? Like they, they can't all just isolate themselves permanently. Um, and, and that's not a sustainable solution anyway. So what are you like, what are you doing? You know? Um, 
And, uh, you know, no surprise that North Carolina has a Democratic governor who, who seems to have some sense, although they have moved too fast, too. Um, but he doesn't want a super spreader event in his state. Nobody wants a super spreader event in their state because it could be catastrophic. Now, maybe you'll get lucky and no super spreader will show up to the convention. Um, but you, but that seems unlikely in a world where there are 9,000 cases a day in Florida. It seems, um, you know, it sort of stretches credibility to think that they're going to have this under control by the time the RNC happens. Um, and so you're, you're putting into motion this like, um, incredible just spectacle of stupidity. Um, where there's going to be tens of thousands of people descending on Jacksonville, Florida, um, to, to do an indoor political convention, um, at a time where Florida might be the worst crisis in the country. Um, you know, hundreds of people are dying a day. Um, you know, at that point, we might be approaching 150,000, um, Americans dead from this virus. And then you're going to have our, our, uh, you know, our mad king descend the elevator in Jacksonville to give a speech to this indoor arena. And the American people are going to look at this and be like, you know what? Uh, man, I loved my 401k in, in January, but this guy's got to go. You know, like we can't do this anymore. <laughs> He's got to go. Um, and Ron DeSantis, maybe he feels like he has the cover of not being up for election for, for another couple of years. Um, and that, you know, he was actually quite popular. <laughs> It's hard to say these words, um, but Ron DeSantis was quite popular before this crisis hit, um, and uh, it's not a big shock that he and like Brian Kemp and some of the other ones that have done the stupidest thing um, have not seen the bumps in their popularity that other governors had. I mean, even governors that were like radioactive before this, like Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island, who I, she was like the least popular governor in America, and she's at like you know sixty something percent right now because because she took it seriously. Uh, and even people that, that screwed up, like Cuomo, you know, like, let's send some COVID patients to nursing homes. Seems like a great idea. Um, even the people that screwed up have seen a bump in their approval ratings because they, they reversed the core. They were like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, this is bad. Like, we got to do these things. Um, does not apply to Bill de Blasio, who continues to be an idiot. But uh, <laughs> remember when he wanted to be president? Wasn't that hilarious? Yeah, no, we had a lot of fun with that one. That was like a little blip in time. Oh, my God. Did we ever make fun of Bill? That was one of the worst presidential campaigns. Just the whole thing, David. Let's just take a break to just recollect the Bill de Blasio <laughs> campaign. Just seeing him up there. Remember how he would, during the, he got into one debate somehow. The rules were such that he, he yeah. squeezed in. And so some strategists told him, what you, they're never going to ask you a question, so just start yelling. So he'd be yelling from the far fringes yeah. of you know the stage and, like, what is this guy yelling about? Why are you here? Yeah. Who, like, what do you think? Like, people don't like you. You know, like, New Yorkers don't like you. Like, you're, un, <laughs> you're unloved where you're from. Like, New Yorkers want to get rid of you. But they don't want to, like, the way that New Yorkers want to get rid of you is not by giving you to America. You no, know? and America like, doesn't want you either. <laughs> America does not want you, man. And then just uh, that dude, like, when you remember when he went to the gym on, like, March 15th or something yes. um just you know just a comedy of errors and then this was during the protest you know when when he was like i don't you know i didn't see any cops running over the protest i don't know what you're talking about yeah um so it's just depressing yeah. uh a real reminder that our problems are not all um brought to us by the republican party no they're not fact. and we'll get into the inter, uh the intramural battle in the democratic party as represented by charles booker and amy mcgrath in kentucky uh, Jamal Bowman and Elliot Engel in New York. We'll get into all that. Uh, but uh, let's just talk about the polling data for a moment. You love to take the deep dive in the polling data uh, to talk the where the country is right now in terms of the election map and Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm a big believer in, um, in polling averages. Um, so you'll see a lot of journalists create entire articles out of a single poll, you know, like the New York times, the, the poll that came out a couple of days ago that showed Biden up 14, which honestly put me in a good mood for the rest of the day. But um, <laughs> my wife was like, why are you so happy? You've been miserable for months. Why are you so happy? And I was like, you got to look at this poll. <laughs> it's really good. Um, and, uh, but you know, you have to take all the polls together and uh, not, not be, because any poll can be a little bit inaccurate. And uh, the averages, because there's tons and tons of national polling, um, the averages have moved to Biden with a, you know, about a five point lead in mid May to about a 10 point lead now, nine and a half, 10 points. Um, and, uh, at least as important to me, 
is that when you look at the 538.com uh, averages of the state, um, the, the, the three states that delivered the presidency to Trump, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, um, are at about the same level as Biden's national polling lead. Um, and this is something um, I'm really off on, on a limb here. Like the, the, the forecasting community is not, not with me on this one. So I just want your readers to know this. I mean, your, your listeners to know this, but uh, um, it looks to me like Trump's electoral college advantage is gone um, because, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the nightmare scenario here is like Democrats get close in Texas, but they don't win. Democrats get close in Georgia, but they don't win. Um, Biden wins California and New York by more than Clinton did. And then, you know, that's a scenario where uh, Biden could win by 5 million votes, but still lose the election mm-hmm. um, if he's doing worse. In, in those three Rust Belt states than he is nationally. And that just does not seem to be what we're seeing right now. What we're seeing is Biden has this like enormous lead nationally and he has the same enormous lead um, in enough states to get into 270. Um, so I'm less worried than I was a year ago <clears throat> that Biden could win the national popular vote but lose the election. Um, but it's worth just taking a second to appreciate that um, a five-point lead going to it 10-point lead in the, in the span of a month uh, is a pretty remarkable development in our polarized era. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton never had a 10-point lead in 2016. Barack Obama never had a 10-point lead in 2012. He never had a 10-point lead in 2008 either. Um, Bush never had a 10-point lead. In so this is, this is unprecedented to have um, a major party candidate at this point in the race in late June have a double-digit lead or close to a double-digit lead. Um, and so I know that I have to say, issue my standard caveats, anything can happen, you know, uh, organize like your 10 points down. Don't get complacent, but also don't, um, you know, don't let the, don't let the, the ghost of 2016, um, you know, haunt your nightmares forever. You know, 2016 was one election, um, and you can price in a couple of points from, some from Republican voter suppression and whatever Russia is going to do and, you know, this and that, uh, they can't overcome a 10-point lead. Well, there's also the lying factor. We talked about that. So voter suppression, uh, whatever Russia does, and the possibility that white voters are lying to pollsters because they're too embarrassed to admit they're f- for this racist lunatic. Which <laughs> So there, there's, you know, there's that factor, okay? Just throw that yeah. out there. It, I don't buy it, Ben. I, I don't. It's uh, in political science it's called the it's called the shy Tory effect, right? Like people are, you know, you have you have shame about supporting the Conservative Party in the UK. I forgot its name, um, and it it just hasn't really shown up in the data um, that anybody has looked at over the last thirty years. You know, people are nervous because some of the state polls in twenty sixteen were off a little bit, but that seems to have been mostly a function that they stopped polling Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in the week after the election, and so they missed the shift. Um, and then some of these pollsters were not waiting for education um, because there's this big education split now between Democrats and Republicans. So yeah. I think most of those, you know, it's less of a worry this year than it was. In I, I hear you. And by the way, uh, that won't stop people for the rest of humanity until the virus wipes us all out of saying, well, the pollsters were wrong in 2016. You know, it's just once right. America fastens on to an idea, that's it. It's not letting go. Now, I, I will so say that were right. The national polls were right in 2016. They were they were as accurate as they've been this whole century, yeah. right? Um, and the idea: Have you ever looked at a Trump rally? Like, do those look like people that seem like they would be ashamed to tell the New York Times pollsters <laughs> that they're supporting? <laughs> no, but you know I mean? like, okay, that, that's <laughs> that's a very valid point. Wait, ring, ring, ring! It's the New uh, York Times. Uh, do you support <laughs> Donald Trump? And they're like, uh, gee, I don't know. Should I tell him? I'm a little embarrassed. It's like they're in Trump T-shirts. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like it's like breathing on each other when the whole rest of the country is like you guys are nuts you're gonna kill each other and the, and they go to a rally they're gonna tell the pollster the truth all right so here we'll, we'll get to this uh the column that uh our good friend eric zorn wrote in today's tribune which it, it leads to this point it's not the trumpsters who lie to the pollsters it's the so-called swing voters who are supposedly mm-hmm. open-minded and they're so open-minded that their brains felt. No, sorry, I didn't say that. So anyway, they're really open-minded. And every year, in around, they start paying attention around October, okay? Because they, yeah. you know, politics, they don't really follow it. So they're just sort of following it. And uh, the fear, Eric Zorn, a liberal columnist for the Chicago Tribune, is that uh, student, uh, demonstrators who tear down statues 
will so scare the uh, the the quintessential swing voter in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and Pennsylvania that and so anger them on just a basic level that they will vote for Donald Trump, the lunatic who is packing people into uh, uh, stadiums and arenas to pay homage to his ego. Uh, and uh, so yep. that, that's, that's the fear. And so these swing voters would never in a million years, according to this theory, have the, gur- the courage to admit that they would vote for such a blatant lunatic, but secretly they're seething because counter-demonstrators have torn down statues. They don't even know who the statues are, but they're still seething. Uh, and, right. and so they're going to vote Trump. That's the prevailing theory. Your thoughts on that? Um, preposterous. So, uh, like, uh, you know, look, a month ago, nobody knew who Fort Benning was named after, right? Like nobody knew and nobody cared. Um, but as soon as it became clear that it was like, oh, wow. Um, like who, what's Benning's first name? You know, like a double dog there. Any, like anybody that's even invested in this, like who's Benning? What, what was his first name? Um, you don't know. Nobody knows. Right. And, uh, so nobody knew. And then when it became, you told people, they were like, Hey, looks like there's a bunch of military installations named after Confederate generals. Um, and even Republicans in Congress were like, Hey, you know what? Let's, uh, let's maybe move on from that. You know, you've got, you've got the project Lincoln people, um, running this attack ad about the Confederate flag and the Confederacy and the way that the Republican party has embraced it, uh, which I think is a pretty devastating ad. I don't, not a big fan of everything that they do, but that one's really good. Um, and, uh, you just have to think about, like, you, you know, you're one of these low information voters that starts paying attention in October. Uh, you know, you're, you're one of the five or 10% of Americans that's willing to switch their vote between, between elections. You know, the country is on fire. Um, you know, your kids all lost their jobs. You know, you're, maybe you're an older, you know, white voter in Florida. Um, your kids lost their jobs. Um, you know, five of your friends have died of COVID-19. You've got this knucklehead uh, holding indoor rallies, um, you know, which, which are spreading the virus everywhere he goes. Um, and you show up at the voting booth on election day and you're like, uh, you know, tough choice. Uh, on the one hand, there's this guy that killed all my friends. Um, on the other hand, there's this guy who doesn't even say that he supports tearing down the, the statues. Um, but like, um, but, but, but AOC does. Um, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote to kill myself, <laughs> you know, because somebody, yeah. because somebody renamed Fort Benning or somebody tore down a statue of Columbus. Um, it's just nuts. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, all these articles that are like, we're going to lose the election because of statues just crack me up because it is so absurd. For one thing, public opinion has changed, um, since all of these like 50 year old white scolds, uh, uh, formed all of their opinions. Um, the, the public opinion about Confederate monuments has reversed itself. Um, this is actually, remember the, the, uh, the Charlottesville, with the protests, which were about Confederate monuments, you know, ostensibly before they brought in all the Nazis. Um, and they, they, released <laughs> yeah. the, they released the public opinion polling and the public supported keeping the Confederate statues up by like 20 points. And I was like, I give up on humanity. Like these, <laughs> these are traitors. These are people who betrayed the United States of America to defend slavery. Um, and you don't want the monuments to these people put up by apologists um, for, for, for that dictatorship, you don't want those monuments torn down. It was just, a, it, it just, it really crushed me a little bit inside. Um, and another thing that made my day was that, you know, the public by frankly, depressingly narrow margins, but it is a majority of the public favors taking Confederate monuments down. Um, and so it's, it's just hard for me to believe that, uh, that Joe Biden's going to lose the election based on something that a majority of the public a- approves of, of doing now. Uh, you know, if you ask people, do you approve of taking down statues of Columbus? You no, know, probably you're probably not going to get a majority of that now. You know, no, uh, Columbus was uh, a genocidal monster uh, who never actually stepped foot in the United States of America. <clears throat> and yet we have statues of everywhere. Um, you know, I, I, I like, I, you know, statues are just like not a thing that gets me. And, you know, it's like I could just walk past it, but I'm not a person of color who's like, you know, why are there a statue of this guy that, that like is responsible for the deaths of like 500,000 Native Americans? There's a statue of this guy in, in the town square, you know? Why was there a statue of Jefferson Davis in the Kentucky State Capitol until last week? You know, Jefferson Davis is a traitor who betrayed his country. Um, this is part of the genius of, the, of having 
um, these Republican vultures on our side for, for one cycle is that the, the Lincoln Project people were able to do something that we have just been too chicken to do forever, right? Which is to say, hey, if you fly the Confederate flag, you are in favor, uh, you are a traitor. You, you support uh, a traitorous movement that, that killed 600,000 <clears throat> Americans um, in defense uh, of, of, you know, the worst crime in, in the history of human civilization. Right. I, I, listen, um, so yeah. why couldn't we say that? Why can't Democrats be like, you fly that flag, you're a traitor. You support that flag, you're a traitor. I don't care about your heritage, right? What that flag says to the rest of the country. Um, and But it has to be the, you know, it has to be the never Trumpers who do it for us, right? But fine, I'll take their help this one cycle. Okay, they're going to turn on us five minutes after the election, but but whatever. Well, this is this is the uh, I'm with you 100 percent on this. This is the uh, 2020 political version of Nixon going to China, where yeah. because Nixon was such a vociferous uh, anti-communist who. Uh, red baited every Democrat he ever ran against who employed all McCarthy tactics to force Democrats into cowering uh, on the issue of free speech uh, versus need the, a so-called need to protect us from a communist infiltration of the state department, what have you, because his entire career was dedicated to that dishonorable mission. He was able to go to China and say, Oh, I'm not making a deal with the greatest, the biggest, the largest communist country. You know what I'm saying? So that's the equivalent. So all these, listen, I welcome, I'm with you. I welcome their support and I welcome all the dirty tricks that you told the Democrats to do and they were too chicken to do when you told them to do it. They are going to benefit from real Republicans who know how to fight dirty, okay? So they're going to benefit for once in their life. And you're, but the only reason what I find a little difficult with this is the reason that the Democrats are too chicken to, to, to raise the issue, as you put it, is because some of these same Republican uh, strategists were the ones concocting the ads like the uh, Willie Horton ad that uh undercut that bush used to undercut dukakis the dukakis in the uh the the tank ad all the the ads that they've played the cultural war ads gene kirkpatrick yeah. speech about san francisco democrats we all know what she was talking about so it's because yeah. they benefited from exploiting these issues david that now they could just just turn right around <laughs> You yeah, me? you know how it's like. Um, sometimes the FBI will hire like criminals um, to <laughs> to help them uh, look into like wire fraud and stuff because yeah. they need the people that did it. Um, you know, I I have seen. You know, I read the the Bulwark and some of these like new Never Trump sites, and there's some, there's some interesting writers there. Um, there's a there's a piece up by Stuart Stevens, who was a Republican strategist who worked on the Bush and Romney campaign, uh, and it, it, the the piece is called "My History with the Confederacy," and it's a really um, you know, it's a really honest account of like growing up and with Mississippi, um, and and the way you know the the influence the Confederacy had on his life. Like there there are some of these guys who actually have said, um, I, I was working for the you know I, I was on the wrong side this whole time, um, and they've changed. There's some other ones that I think are just like opportunists, <laughs> um, who who will flip back to to being a Republican as soon as Trump is gone, even if. Trumpism like stumbles on in the form of Tom Cotton or Josh Howley or um, whichever one of these yahoos takes over the party. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's good. It's good to have them. It's good to have them uh, making ads for us right now, but I don't trust them. You know, um, it's like, I feel like it's like the alliance you know, between America and the Soviets during World War II. It's like the minute it's over, we're going to be like, and we're at war again. Like, yep. Thank you for, <laughs> thank yeah. you for your help and seeing uh, <laughs> yeah. so but uh, but we can learn from these guys you know because they're they're ruthless um and th- and they're not lying you know like i don't i, I you know as, as dirty as i want to fight i don't believe in lying and political advertisements that gets corrosive um all these guys are doing is they're just hanging trump with his own work you know they're just like uh here's here's what trump said about the coronavirus early on you know uh do you like this no good vote for joe biden um, I'd actually really like to see them put out more positive messaging about Biden 
that's about more than his personal story. You know, like, um, because what's happening right now is like if, if, if the never Trumpers are like, you know, all the ads, are, most of the ads are like, Trump is bad. This is why Trump is bad. Uh, this is why the Confederacy is bad. I can't believe we have to make this argument in 2020, but this is why the, uh, this is why the Confederacy is bad. Um, but it's like, you know, there is some research to show that making a positive case for Biden would be more effective even than, um, than, than these attacks on Trump. Um, and, you know, personally, I don't have like a, a deep well of positive things to say about our nominee, uh, other than that he is, is, would be vastly better than Trump and, and, you know, is I think it would be kind of a caretaker president and that's fine. You know, I, I think Joe Biden is a personally decent human being. Um, I have a lot of disagreements with him uh, in terms of his policies, but uh, I'll crawl over hot coals to vote for him. But I think the case needs to be made to voters, you know, um, and not just like Joe Biden had a tough life and, um, you know, he's from Scranton and his dad called him Joey and, you know, all, all the stuff about his story. That's, you know, it's a, it's a nice story, right? It's a story of his life, it's a nice story. Um, but we, I think that, I think the voters need to see the never Trumpers say like, actually, uh, Joe Biden has a better plan on healthcare than Donald Trump. Um, actually, Joe Biden um, has a better plan on X, Y, and Z, because that's, I think, ultimately going to be just as resonant with voters than saying um, that Joe Biden is personally decent, you know, because that didn't work for Hillary Clinton. Um, if you remember in the closing month of the campaign, um, the, the Clinton campaign went super, super heavy um, on these uh, on these anti-Trump ads, um, which at the time I was like, man, that's good. That's cutting. You remember the one where it was like a bunch of little girls um, listening to Donald Trump speak and they were like crying and it was yeah. like, this is the future you want for your little girls. And 62 million people were like, yep, I do. That's the future I want for them. Yeah. I, I want a, a sociopathic misogynist to ruin my daughter's lives. I, I don't care. Um, and I think that, you know, I honestly think that they would have been much better off just running issue ads um, about the things that Clinton wanted to do. Um, rather than telling people that Trump is a piece of garbage, which which I think even his supporters know. So, well, anyway. That gets to <laughs> what uh, Hillary Clinton wants to do. Uh, and it's as good a point as ever to uh, transition. Although, before I transition to the Democratic Party, I have to ask you one thing. I took, an, I, I, I took notes on what you were saying. And you said earlier in the conversation, the path forward to reverse the polling decline for Trump is so clear. And I wrote that down because I wanted you to explicate what exactly you meant. What is the path forward to reverse uh, the polling decline? Because I want to understand if you think there's, once you've explained that, is there any possibility you think that Donald Trump has the discipline to follow that plan? So go ahead and and answer those questions. Sure. I mean, the the path forward is clear, right? Like um, we're we're in a, we're in a a crisis, you know, the worst crisis that anybody alive um, has lived through unless you're unless you're a, over the age of 100 um, and you were an adult during the Great Depression. Uh, this is the worst crisis that anyone has been through. Um, people are really unhappy. Um, this, you saw this data that Americans are unhappier than they've been in 50 years. Um, you know, I, I'm unhappy. I'm sure you're unhappy. You know, different people have different levels of unhappiness based on their personal situation. But I have not enjoyed the last four months of my life. It's been pretty miserable. Um, and I think people also can, can tell that it's not over yet, you know, that we, that we have some more months of difficulty and challenge ahead of us. And I think that what Americans really want, um, is to see the president of the United States get up every day, um, and work as hard as he can to, to make our, our, to alleviate our misery. You know, for, for Trump, that would mean, you know, get, you know, be seen as working with some kind of task force on the coronavirus. Um, don't say that, you know, they're shutting down testing sites in Illinois and Colorado. They're pulling federal funding for, for coronavirus testing. The president goes out and says, I'm, I want to slow it down. Um, and then his spokespeople are like, he's joking. And then he goes and says it again, right? This is like a pattern of the Trump presidency. Um, he, he won't wear a mask. He won't take it seriously. Um, he will not express empathy um, with, uh, with black Americans who've been, who've been victimized by the police. Um, he, he will not bend. Um, on, on any of these issues. And so if you're an unhappy person, uh, you're an unhappy American, and, and, and there's an election in four months, um, and the incumbent president, it, it looks like he just doesn't care about what you're going through. Like he's incapable of empathy. Um, you know, all he has to do is get up tomorrow morning, um, you know, put on a mask, go to a press conference, 
announce the, the formation of a giant task force, uh, you know, get Mitch McConnell in the room, just be like, pass the Democrats' latest stimulus bill, pass it, don't change a word. Mitch, don't change a word. Go in, pass the whole thing. I know it's, I know it's a lot of money, uh, but uh, you actually never cared about that to begin with. We all know this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Because the only thing actually that, that has like kept the economy um, from, from cratering even worse is the fact that we passed these massive stimulus bills earlier in the, in the crisis. Um, and lo and behold, when they did that, uh, and people were getting their unemployment uh, and the small businesses were getting their, their, um, their loans, Trump's approval floated up to like 46% in mid-May, right? And, and, as soon, and it's like, it is not, a, even when he was being a complete idiot for these press conferences, right? Like the fact that the government was pursuing policies that actually alleviated the suffering um, meant that he was, you know, he got, he got a little boost out of that. Um, and now that he's seen as like pretending the, the, the crisis is over, um, he's losing support. So what he really needs to, I don't, I, he's not, you know, he doesn't listen to me anyway, so I don't feel like I'm giving him any secrets. you got to take it seriously, man. Like, go. Like go. Um, you know, you got to give press conferences and, and, and bring Fauci out and support the governors and distribute money. Uh, encourage the Senate to, to take up a, a new stimulus bill. Uh, the fact that they won't do any of this stuff just makes me, just makes me wonder what really is happening inside the White House right now. Um, you know, they, they, they have people on the team that can read polls. Like they, they know, they know that, that the public mood has shifted against them. Um, and the one thing they really could not afford was to have elderly white people turn against them. Right. Like this is, this is a demographic that Trump won by double digits in 2016. And now they're for Biden. It's a, it's a huge, huge and an extremely consequential reversal, um, to have, to have, uh, over 65 voters turn against, um, Donald Trump. And they, what those voters want to see, because, you know, if you're if you're a seventy year old, like you're if you're my parents, if my if my conservative father has made it this far into the podcast, hi dad. Uh, <laughs> my um, my parents are desperate to see us. You know, like they want to see their grandkids. Yeah. Um. They they, they want to see their their children. Um. And a lot of elderly Americans are are not able to do that. They can't see their 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 loved ones, and they don't have any horizon in which they can be able to do that. And all they see is this dumb president going and holding rallies, you know, and they're like, Oh, I can't hug my grandkids for another five months. Um, but you can go to Tulsa and like, you know, um, breathe your disgusting Tic Tac breath on 19,000 people. Like, no, you know, don't do it. Um, but you know, he, he's unchangeable, Ben, he's unreachable. He's unreachable. He's unteachable. Um, he's, he's beyond hope. And I mean, I have some, uh, feeling that they can, you know, just like lock him in a room for the last two weeks of October um, and maybe I'll get him a couple of points, but he's so far behind right now. Um, and he's so been so unwilling to change course that it's just, it's hard for me to see how he turns this around without um, doing things that I would actually welcome, you know, which is like get the federal government involved in this crisis, start doing the things that need to be done, um, help people, you know, um, because it's like, I, I want to win, but I don't want to assume control of like a smoking crater of a country either. You know, yeah. like that's not, that's not how I, 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 you know, I wanted a short, well-timed recession. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not the worst nightmare of my life. <laughs> By the way, the, uh, I just that, uh, that, that riff you had about Donald Trump, uh, saying that he was going to cut down testing because testing showed that more people had the virus so the way to deal with bad news is to cut down testing uh, this is what he said and then this their defense is that he was joking that's their defense i'm just listening to what you're saying that's their defense oh he was joking so he's making a joke out of fact i mean it's just so absurd and then he goes no i'm not joking so, so right. there, there goes that defense, which wasn't much of a def So the, the smartest minds, the political minds in the White House figured, I think we're better off with the voters if we say he was joking about a serious crisis that is not really something you want your president to joke about as opposed to having your president deal with them. I, we're better off with saying he joked about it than saying he was serious about it. So yes, I think you're probably correct when you say there's not much chance he's going to follow your advice, even if he were listening to this yeah. show right now all right now let me ask you let's uh, shift gears and close down the show with the discussion of what's going on in the democratic party uh in new york jamal bowman uh, handedly defeated 
uh, Elliot Engel in a primary, Democratic primary. AOC was a resounding victor in her run for re-election in the primary. I think she got over 70% of the vote. And in Kentucky, it's too close to tell. Charles, uh, excuse me, Booker versus Amy McGrath battling it out. Last I saw, Charles Booker was ahead. We won't know until Tuesday what the results are. It seems as though the battle in the Democratic Party between folks for lack of a better term, I'll say the Ben faction of the Democratic Party, the lefties in the Democratic Party uh, versus the, uh, I don't know what do you call them, the, the ROM faction of the Democratic Party. It seems as though they're going at it pretty strong. Uh, so what's your take on who's ahead, who's behind, and how this all plays out? Well, you know, it, it's, a, it's a long game, right? Um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, there's been a few high-profile knockouts of incumbent Democrats by um, sort of insurgent progressive challengers in, in the last few years. Um, and, and Jamal Bowman is, is sort of the latest example of a really senior Democrat, and I say senior in both the terms, in the sense of service and how old they are, <laughs> uh, a, really, a really senior Democrat who, you know, frankly has just lost touch with the, you know, the pulse of their district. You know, the um, Elliott Engels district is very diverse. Um, to get the majority and minority. Um, and that's, it's been a big change since he got into Congress in the 14th century. And, um, you know, the, the, that's, a, that's a place where <laughs> I think the, the hunger for change in that district transcended the, the progressive, you know, center-left divide in the sense that I think Jamal Bowman got a lot of votes from people that were just like, yeah, why is Elliot Engel still in Congress, you know? <laughs> Um, and what has he done for us lately? Um, and he really made a couple of like monumental screw ups. I think that, that buried him, um, when he went to, to go speak to the protesters and he was caught on a hot mic saying like, I wouldn't be here if there wasn't a primary yeah. or I wouldn't care if it wasn't a primary. And it was like, uh, that's the nail going into your coffin, buddy. You're gone. Um, and so in this cycle, there's been a, there's been a few cases where, uh, you know, Marie Newman beating Lipinski, um, uh, the, the Bowman race, uh, looks like the Booker race. Um, but I also wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say it's been like a massive tsunami or anything of, of progressives taking up sitting Democrats. It's, um, it's, a, it's a war that's being fought kind of one district at a time um, in, a, in a handful. You, know, you turn out a handful of these sort of like fossilized centrists and you replace them with people who have new ideas. Um, eventually, you, you, you know, you will transform the party. I think the, the bigger picture is that, uh, you know, Jamal Bowman, it's really interesting. Bowman's 44, right? So he's right on that cusp um, of where um, sort of the public policy beliefs of Democrats are dramatically different based on your age. You know, so uh, under 45 Dems um, are just as a group, like way more progressive, you know, like want more government intervention in the economy. Um, they want, they want Medicare for all. Um, they want an all, you know, big shift in our foreign policy. I think it was a big problem for Engel. Because Engel is one of the, the Democrats who, who opposed the Iran deal. It's like, get out of town. And um, so it's, uh, it's the generational divide in a snapshot, right? Where it's like under 45 Democrats who are in a lot of places are outvoted by their older counterparts because they don't show up enough, um, want to bring a different world into existence. You know, they're less committed to the Democratic Party than their older counterparts. Um, and they find people like Elliot Engel to just be like stultifying, you know? And so... You know, the, the, and, and I think that they're, they're pursuing a smart strategy in the sense that Engel's district is, um, you know, uh, safer than, than, uh, than having your friends over for, for a barbecue with masks on. And, uh, you know, like Democrats, you know, Jamal Bowman is basically a congressman now, you know, uh, there's no way he's going to lose that district. Same with Marie Newman. Um, and uh, there's a lot of these, like a hundred of these, uh, these super, super duper safe Democratic seats. Um, many of which are inhabited. I don't, I don't, my self-interest prevents me from naming names for, for Illinois. Um, but, but are inhabited by, you know, people that are, are out of touch with the zeitgeist in their own districts. Um, and so I think taking all of the really safe democratic districts in the country, um, and sort of getting rid of these, um, these establishment Democrats one at a time, um, is a good, it's a good long game strategy. And, um, I think that the, to be honest, I think the coronavirus crisis has accelerated this all a little bit, um, where people are are frustrated with, uh, even with the Democrats, you know, uh, frustrated with the sort of inability of the House Democrats to control the media narrative. Um, does anybody even know what was in that most recent stimulus package? 
Um, why did they cave on, on certain things? Like, why did they carve out exemptions for companies of over 500 people for, for medical leave stuff for, for the virus? You know, like, we could go on and on, right? Um, but the reality is that, that a lot of these older Democrats are, not all of them, you know, but a lot of them are out of touch um, with what the young folks want. And, and there are certain places um, where, where those younger voters are going to be able to, to take their candidates and carry them to victory. Um, you know, the, the Kentucky race is also really interesting. You know, Amy McGrath has been campaigning as basically a general election candidate for like a year. She spent, I think, $41 million um, to, it looks like, lose the Senate primary. Um, and it's, it, it is really telling that the Democratic leadership just would not budge from their support for McGrath or Engel um, because their policy is, you know, we don't, we don't back primary challenges to sitting Democrats. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to say we're going to stay out of it, right? But the, but the, but the DCCC was not staying out of this Engel race, right? Like they, they rallied the troops for him. And I think it was a real, you know, just like it was with AOC, it was a real embarrassment because they put the party's weight behind Engel. Um, and I think people don't like that either. You know, they're like, fine, you know, like these, these, these parties, in most countries, parties are private organizations, you know, and they can set their own rules and that's fine. But in America, there's only two of them, you know, there's only two real parties here. And they're basically public utilities and they, they don't want the Democratic leadership like putting um, its, its thumb on the scale like that, unless the challenger is some like a, you know, like a Nazi or something, right? Or, or a, a QAnon, uh, you know, a couple of like people that believe in the QAnon conspiracy have won Republican primaries in the last couple of months. It's just like a low-key, very disturbing trend that's been buried by the coronavirus. So anyway, uh, I see it as part of the generational transformation yeah. of the party and part of the general generational transformation of our politics that we're really plunging into. Well, I, I, I'll, in terms of Kentucky, I'll take a, a one step further. I, and again, we don't know who won the race, but it's a lot closer than anybody would have expected three months ago. And, uh, and you're absolutely correct. So many Democrats outside of Kentucky did not even realize there was a primary thought Amy McGrath was already the nominee and were contributing money because it's a beat Mitch beat Mitch. So they just want to beat Mitch. Okay. Uh, and this is why I still think there's going to be the complacency that we saw work against Hillary Clinton in 2020, because I think, uh, the Dems aren't complacent, uh, at this moment. Now, what, the the factor I see in Kentucky is what we talked about a long time ago. One of our conversations, when we talked about why Biden uh, won the black vote. I believe with the black vote in Kentucky, it's a primary. It's a Democratic primary in the South. The decisive yeah. vote will be cast by black people, and <laughs> I don't know what it's going to take Democrats to learn the lesson that black people get to vote too. You know what I'm saying? And we talked about this in terms of. <laughs> Uh, Bernie Sanders' inability over two uh, election cycles to bring over a significant number of the black vote. I know he had a lot of younger black uh, voters supported him, but uh, we saw that. We talked about that at length. I believe, and I got to see the numbers, but my sense is that's what happened in Kentucky. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that the, the George Floyd protests and the, the sort of the, the cascade of change in public opinion about Black Lives Matter also really boosted Booker at the, at the last minute at a really important minute. Um, I think McGrath took him very seriously until it was too late. Um, and we're, you know, we're in this moment, right, where it's like um, these protests are ongoing. Um, the cops keep killing people. Uh, you know, it seems, seems like every day uh, there's another outrage that gets posted around Twitter of, of something terrible happening to, to uh, one of our fellow citizens. Um, and, and Booker was able to, to ride that wave at, at precisely the right time because McGrath is, you know, pretty, pretty, um, you know, unpersuasive on these issues. And, um, you know, I think voters looked at it and they were like, well, we could have this like sort of squishy centrist running against McConnell, squishy white centrist, or we could have this, you know, kind of more progressive, um, African American Democrat. So why don't we do it? Now, all of that said, honestly, I don't think either of these people are taking out McConnell. Um, it would be, I know it's, it's, it's so hard because like Mitch McConnell really is like one of the worst people in America and his political legacy is going to be so destructive for, for our politics. I think that he will be regarded as one of the primary villains of our era and it would be the most satisfying thing in the entire world to take him out. Um, but Kentucky is just, it's like, 
so red, you know, that I just, like, I think that you'd need another five to 10 points of erosion for Trump in the national environment. In other words, like Biden would need to, to win the election by like 15 or 20 points, I think, for Booker to be competitive against McConnell. Now, he wouldn't need to run even with Biden. I mean, like, uh, like Biden wouldn't need to win Kentucky for this to happen because McConnell is also not that popular in Kentucky. You know, he's the face of, of Congress, you know, the face of the Senate. The Senate's unpopular. Congress is unpopular. Everybody's unpopular. You know, Pelosi's unpopular. They're all unpopular. <laughs> you know? yeah. So McConnell, um, McConnell takes a hit in Kentucky because he, because he's such a jerk. Um, and I think even some Kentucky Republicans don't like him. Uh, you remember back in 2014, um, uh, there was, you know, some hope before election night that Allison Lundergan Grimes was going to take him out. Oh yeah. Um, and, then, and you know, the Republicans outperformed their polls that year quite, quite significantly. Um, so I don't think that I don't think it could need to be a situation where Biden wins Kentucky, but I don't think it's close enough yet, unfortunately. And I, I you know, to, honestly, if your listeners are thinking like, where do I send my money? Uh, I love Charles Booker, but I, I don't think that this is the, the race that you invest in to get the Senate back. Well, uh, I'll uh, come unless you're rich. You I say if you have disposable right, income, yeah. definitely just just to keep just yeah. to keep Mitch McConnell busy. And by the way, the symbolism—if it is Booker—the symbolism of Charles Booker, Booker, a black man defeating Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. I'll be. I'll, it would be the greatest thing in the world. It would be the greatest, be the greatest thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> David Ferris, he is the author of The Kids Are All Left. Run, don't walk to a bookstore and buy it or order it and have it book delivered to your home, what have you. The Kids Are All Left. Roosevelt University political science professor. Thank you very much, Davis. Uh, David, I, I put David and Ferris. Uh, fa- thank you very much, David. <laughs> and uh, stay safe, stay sound. We'll talk to you uh, real soon, all right? Thanks for having me on the show again, Ben. It's always uh, super fun to be here. And uh I look forward to talking to you again uh, in a month, and I hope that uh, Trump has eroded even further. By <laughs> no, I can't wait. For... <laughs> All right, take care, everybody. All right, bye. Good job, David. Thank you so much. 